a good and gracious king. Wow, what great lyrics, huh? Get our hearts just focused on the one who is worthy. Hey, I'm Ted Benettieri. I am one of the residents here um, in the program that Clint and Colby are putting us through the paces. Uh, Mike Garland and I, we're enjoying so much being trained and being mentored. Uh, our goal is to eventually start Pillar Church of Stafford. Uh, so we've been praying for Topsail, and hopefully Stafford is going to be the next grandchild uh, from Pillar Dumfries. Praise God. Um, so while we've been here, we've enjoyed tremendously your guys' acceptance of us. We appreciate you drawing us into the fold, extending so much fellowship and prayer and encouragement to us. Uh, and Kobe asked me if I would open the word today in Hebrews 8, so we're just going to carry on with uh, where we left off in chapter 7 last week. To have you think about chapter 8, we're going to read it in just a moment. Think about uh, this, this week that we've enjoyed, uh, our American celebration of Thanksgiving. And for my family and, and me, it was kind of a different one this year because we tried to listen to those authorities who are over us, Romans 13. And so we're saying, okay, they're asking us to not do a lot of travel and everything. So we stayed home, the three of us, my wife and my mother-in-law and me. And then we got on Zoom duo and talked with the family for about a half hour uh, of Pennsylvania and different places in Northern Virginia. And um, we had a good time, but it wasn't the same, all right? We ate our nice 13-pound turkey together in our dining room, and we have way too much leftover. So if anybody's looking for turkey and stuffing, we got tons of it, okay? Because there's just three little eaters at our house. But anyway, we had a great little time. But something was missing, and uh, usually at our table, uh, as we eat dinner, we're having a great time just talking, our daughters, sons-in-law, anybody else that shows up. And uh, usually by the time we've double eaten, we're so like, put, we just have to push the, the table away and we just sit and talk and laugh and talk and then laugh and then laugh more. And half the time I go, what are we laughing about? But anyway, I missed that this year because uh, we just have a great time as a family. One of the things that happens is we laugh about stories, that things that happen, oh, dad, remember when you thus and such, and oh, remember when the dog jumped up and got the turkey, and, you know, we laugh about those stories. And as I grew up, I grew up in a family where we, we hung out with grandparents and aunts and uncles and cousins and did the same thing at Thanksgiving. And I remember a few times driving home, mom just kind of mentioning to dad quietly in the front seat, you know, I don't remember that story quite that way. I think that got a little embellished by aunt such and such or cousin such and such when he was describing what happened when. And I think that's something we often do, don't we? We embellish. We, we kind of want to bring memories back. We, we want to kind of think the good old days, you know. And if we think about where we are in the book of Hebrews, we think about the struggle that the, the nation of Israel historically was having Think about the New Testament book of Hebrews. The writer of Hebrews was helping these Jewish background Christians who were fairly new in the faith, who were kind of hearkening back, kind of getting a little nostalgic and wanting their earlier roots of Judaism to color their new covenant practice, their new covenant worship of God through the new covenant priest, Jesus Christ. And that was kind of hard because they were used to the priest system. They were used to the Levites, you know, doing all these offerings 
day in and day out. And, and all these things made God a little more tangible to people because they could do something. They could work a work. They could save up and give a, a, and pay for a turtle dove or an offering in the, in the Jerusalem temple. And boy, when you start pulling away my ability to do something for me, and it's all about faith in somebody who did something for me already, namely the better priest, Jesus, chapter 7, that's a hard thing. It doesn't go down easy. And so that's where we are in Hebrews chapter 8. We're dealing with people who I think you and I can identify with who were struggling trying to make the old covenant obsolete when they knew that the new was much better. So it's one thing to know it up here. It's another thing to act on it. So I want to read Hebrews chapter 8 and have us think about that circumstance of the, the lives of these people and their struggle to make the old religious practices, the ways of offering ourselves to God, obsolete, and how hard it is to turn around and practice the new through Jesus Christ. Let's read Hebrews chapter 8, verses 1 through 13, the whole chapter. I'll be reading the ESV. Now, here's the point in what we are saying. We have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, a minister of the holy places in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. For every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices. Thus it is necessary for this priest also to have something to offer. Now, if he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all, since there are priests who offer gifts according to the law. They serve a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God, see that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old as the covenant he mediates is better, since it is enacted on better promises. For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. That is, if the Jews didn't fault all the time and blow it, there would be no reason for a second. Verse 8, for he finds fault with them when he says, behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord. And this now is a quote out of Jeremiah chapter 31. Days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel, with the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, for they did not continue in my covenant, and so I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws into their minds and will write them on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And they shall not teach each other anymore, each one his neighbor, and each one to his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest of them. For I will be merciful toward their iniquities, and I will remember them their sins no more. Verse 13, in speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. 
and what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. Well, I want us to see this chapter first in two sections. In the first one, I'm going to just say Roman numeral one. So if you want to see my outline, here's my Roman numeral one. If you're taking notes, you can follow along that way. The present actions of our better priest. So we see in verses one through five, the present actions of our better priest. Now this is a continuation of what Pastor Colby was teaching us last week in chapter seven. That here is this new priest, this high priest that is an indestructible life. He has no beginning, no end. It's Jesus, the Son of God, the perfect man who came to earth, who lived a righteous life, the only perfect life that could be offered to the Father. And then he's very God, he's very man and very God at the same time. He is now ascended. He's in heaven the great high priest Jesus, who has done his work. We saw in chapter 7, verse 25, this one, Jesus, this high priest, is now always living, making intercession for you and me in heaven because we're that bad and we need that much help. Ever living for us, making intercession. He's at the Father's throne in heaven doing this. It is a permanent, perpetual and pure priesthood just for us. Okay, so based on those qualities that we saw in chapter 7 that Pastor Colby opened up to us last week, based on those qualities of his priestly care for people of the new covenant, that's us who are believers, verses 1 through 5 show us the action of the high priest, his qualities, now his action. What's he doing in his present session in heaven? First of all, we see letter A, Jesus is continuously in session with the Father. Continuously in session with the Father. Now contrast that with what the old priesthood was. It was thousands of Levite men who were round the clock, shift after shift, offering sacrifices, doing all this priestly work. Why? Why a priest? Why did they need a priest? Well, the need of a priest is because our sin is so bad, mankind's rebellion is such that it separates holy God from sinful man. And the only way that God in his holiness will not vaporize all of humanity because of the rebellion, the only way he'll withhold that for a while is through the priesthood that he ordained. Offer the blood, offer the savory sacrifices of grain and animals, and then that final one day of year, Yom Kippur, the spotless lamb, do all that and you will appease my anger for a while. Not for eternity, but for a while. So priesthood is very, very important in the old covenant. And if you're a person like these Christians who had a Jewish background, they were so used to that ancestry. They were so used to this whole thing of priests and I need somebody to mediate between me and holy God in heaven and I need a priest. And that was just part of their upbringing. That was part of the fiber of their life. And these new Christians are struggling with that idea. But we saw here in our first point, verse 1, Jesus is continuously in present session with the Father, not like the Levites who came and went, who died, and, and new generations of Levites 
over and over, successively offering these sacrifices to keep God happy. Secondly, letter B, verse 2. Jesus forever lives in the tabernacle for us. Heaven is the tabernacle. Heaven is the real place. What was here on the earth in the tent of meeting that God had uh, prescribed that Moses and his people make that tent after he brought them out of the Egyptian bondage of 400 years and put them in the wilderness and said, now you're my people. He told them to make these tents and within the center of that, the tabernacle would be God coming down to earth, the Shekinah presence. And wherever he was, the people centered themselves around it because that's our God. So they're used to this tent, this tabernacle that moved around. Eventually, we know the history of the Old Testament, a temple was finally built after David had put all the money together. Then through Solomon, this amazing, beautiful building was built on the Temple Mount in Jerusalem. Still, though, a type. Still not the permanent thing. Only a picture of something greater in heaven, we're told. And so we're reminded that even though it's like in our mind and it's spiritual and we can't get our hands on it, we can't see a, a snapshot of the Temple Mount, oh, that's where God is. No, instead, He's glorious in heaven. And that's what our mind's eye has to fix on. The writer of the Hebrews knew the people were having a hard time with that. They're so used to something tangible, something we could be a part of, a religion that makes us feel like we've got something in this. And Christianity, the new covenant, is not that. It's better much better than that. So we look at this quality um, that Jesus is in the real tabernacle waiting for us, the place of dwelling, where one day soon we're going to be around it. We're going to be enjoying that amazing dwelling, that tabernacling of God because we're made for that. Well, going on, letter C, I would say verses 3, 4, and 5. The action of our Savior, Jesus perfectly restrains God's wrath. Jesus perfectly restrains God's wrath. Remember the place of a priest. Because we're unholy, because we mess up, because in our heart we play games with God, we're discontent oftentimes, we're grouching and grinding about something. Boy, butterball, they kind of blew it. We got that turkey, that frozen turkey, a good price on it, but it didn't come with one of those little pop-up thermometers so we had to get the old thermometer out and see is it 165 you know oh butterball what's wrong with those guys it saved 10 cents by not putting a plastic thermometer in come on where am i at that moment on thanksgiving waiting for this wonderful turkey to be ready i'm grinding over butterball company big deal but isn't that how we are isn't that doesn't that make us who we really are come on life's got to work for me come on god get everything in order for me and he's reminding us Hey, wait a minute. There is wrath that is due for every, every infraction, every raunchy attitude, every ill thought, every discontent thought and word. There's God with his son restraining his evil because of Jesus, restraining his wrath against my evil because of Jesus. He's always there. Psalm 40, written by David a thousand years before the birth of Jesus. Psalm 40 what does David say as he's prefiguring, as he's speaking ahead about the Savior to come, about this better high priest? He says, God does not delight in sacrifices and burnt offerings. 
not in the old priesthood. He doesn't delight there. But only in a whole body sacrifice will he be satisfied. That's Jesus, isn't it? A thousand years later, offering himself, giving himself on a cross to take away the penalty due my raunchy sins. That's amazing. So, verses 1 through 5, we see the wonderful actions of our high priest, Jesus, right there. Never going to leave the tabernacle. Never going to have to come back to earth to mediate again. It's all up there. That's where we're going, folks. That's our present dwelling. We're already citizens of the heavenly kingdom, Philippians tells us. We're only awaiting that day of glory. This place is not our home for believers. We're passing through. Well, let's go to the second part. That's verses 6 through 13. So Roman numeral 2 in your outline if you're taking notes. The covenant to end all covenants. The covenant to end all covenants. We see that in verses 6 through 13. The old covenant, the original playbook that God laid out to the people of Israel as he promised, I'm going to take you from Egyptian bondage. I hear your cry. You're my people. I want you to have a land. I want you to have a life that is a community that speaks of me. I want you to enjoy life. So I'm going to liberate you from Egypt. I'm going to take you on dry ground across that Red Sea. I'm going to take you into a place, eventually a land flowing with milk and honey. Just might not be in your timing, though. Might not be your way. There might be 40 years in a wilderness, but I'm going to be with you. And then you might have to kind of fight your way in to get over that Jordan River, but I'm going to be with you, and that land is waiting for you. Can we trust him? Well, that's what we, we're seeing here in this idea of a new covenant. God says, your faults, your fouls, the ways that you break the boundaries of my game plan for you have come up to me at a point like a stench in the nostrils of God to where he has to do something about it. And so just at the right time, we see this quote here from Jeremiah. Jeremiah, 600, 610 B.C., thereabouts, this prophecy to just the few remaining Jews that are left. All the rest of them, where are they? God's already given them over to captivity. He's had it with their rebellion. And he's let the Assyrians come in and, and capture and decimate the land of the north. Now the southern tribes in Judah, everything is going to go, even the temple, it's going to go. And he's telling them through the mouth of Jeremiah the prophet, hey folks, don't worry, I still care about you. Because of my fame, I'm not going to let this thing completely fall apart. But you're going to have to be disciplined. 70 years, you're going to be in captivity. And so that's what we read here in Jeremiah 31. His playbook, his history for Israel, includes the reminder of punishment, but then the, the coming through and the blessing, the blessing that we read here in chapter, uh, from Jeremiah 31, uh, 31 through 34. So these awesome words are gospel words their hope way before Jesus ever got to earth. Gospel in the Old Testament. Good stuff. Sink your teeth into it. Let's look at these. First of all, verse 10. Letter A. God's laws are written on believers' hearts. You see that in verse 10. God's laws are written on believers' hearts. A companion 
prophecy to Jeremiah would be Ezekiel, Ezekiel 36, 32, 36, where again, the same kind of promise, I'll be with you, I'm going to take your stony heart out, I'm going to put a new heart of flesh in you, I'm going to write my laws on your heart, on your minds, because you can't do it yourself, but I know that already. Look at what a gracious, kind God who gets us, who understands our problems, and who makes provision for us. So this promise of his law being written on our hearts is just amazing. Letter B, God holds us in his covenant. Verse 10, the emphasis is God holds us. We don't hold him because he knows how quickly we forget him, how quickly we lose it. We could have just prayed at the table and thanked God for something and we're starting to eat, and we look up, and one of our kids is already digging in and making a mess. And we go, hey, what are you doing? Come on. Oh, wait a minute, wait a minute. I'm supposed to be nice. This is Thanksgiving. Sweetheart, did mom say that you could do that? Can you take it? You know, here we are, right there, after we thanked God for food, and we're grateful to be full of the Holy Spirit and having our family together, and we're already jumping down our kid's throat because we're in charge, because we know what's best. Because, oh, I forgot to be civil. I need Jesus. I just prayed, and now I'm not clinging to him. I'm clinging back to me. This is you and me. It's not just the Jews. 2,000 years ago, uh, 3,000 years ago, actually, uh, 2,600 years ago through Jeremiah, it's us today. We realize that our intentions are often good, but we don't cling to our Savior. And he gets it. He knows that. So he holds on to us. His covenant is so wonderful that he knows me, he remembers my frame, he knows I'm just dust, and so he loves me like a father. Psalm 103 that we just read. He's got our number. He knows what we're made of. He knows our struggles. And that's what this covenant is all about. He's holding me when I'm not able the Emmanuel promise. You've heard that term many times. That's what's listed here. That Emmanuel promise. Emmanuel, God with us. We sang that. Here we are in the Advent season and we're saying, yes, this is the story that I want not only my heart to know, but I want people in America and people around the world to know this story. God comes to earth. Emmanuel. El, Elohim, Im, Imam, I am with you in the Hebrew. Elohim is with us. Emmanuel, that's a good one to hang on to. And that promise is here and it's in many places in the scripture. God realizes you and I can't hang on. We need him to hold on to us. Let me read with you uh, the end of this Emmanuel promise in chapter 21 of Revelation. Let me just read it to you in your hearing because it just cinches up this whole Emmanuel promise and tells us where it's all going. Revelation 21, verses 3 through 5. Here's the Apostle John on the prison isle of Patmos, along with some others who are imprisoned at this time because of their faith. They're, they're in a tough place. They're losing hope. But God knows. And what does he do? He brings this awesome revelation to them as a means of comfort to say, here I am. Don't forget me. Revelation 21, 3. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. 
I will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them, their God, the Emmanuel promise. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning or crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, and who's he on the throne? Who is it? Let's hear it. Jesus, I heard that. It's Jesus. He's on the throne. And what is he saying in the end? He's the victor. He's already there. The tabernacle of God is there. And he's with the Father. And what is he saying? I am making all things new. And he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. Wow. <laughs> I don't know about you, but I like that Emmanuel promise. And I'm holding on to that because there's not much else that makes sense in life and there's not much else that's enduring. But my God, oh my God, and his promises are yes and amen in Jesus Christ. Amen? Amen. Well, letter C, all believers fully know their God. Verse 11, all believers fully know their God. What are we getting at here? For a religious person to have heard the scriptures and to be taught and even be raised in a church home all your life, for these Jews who heard it constantly, yeah, I know, I got it, thank you, I know, it's supposed to be good, Ten Commandments, do unto others as you'd have them do unto you, uh, you know, uh, okay, so we've got it down, we've got the drill, but that's not what he's talking about, because anybody can do that, anybody can fake being religious and being good. What he's saying is, true religion is to know me experientially, to know me in the fiber of your being so that I start taking on your thoughts. I start taking on some of your daydreams. I start becoming the object of what you're longing for and looking for. I become the center point of your marriage so that it's two becoming one flesh in Jesus. And I take on the relationship that you really want to have with your children, but you struggle with. I, the Holy Spirit, am going to help them hear your words. I might have to use other people because they not, might not be listening to your words. But don't worry, I'll take care of your children. Would you trust me? Would you believe me? Would you not argue with them? Would you not play upper moral high ground and guiltify those kids? Would you instead... Walk with me in confidence that my spirit will help you. You see, this is the kind of stuff God knows about us. And this is why we need this Emmanuel promise. This is why we need to, be, we need to fully know him. Letter D. Not only do we fully know him and are known because of his word, because of Christ dwelling in us through his spirit, but letter D, verse 12, believers enjoy full mercy and forgiveness. Believers enjoy full mercy and forgiveness. Now we know these words, mercy, forgiveness. Yeah, I, you know, my daughters all grew up knowing we did the, the Baptist catechism for kids, Spurgeon's catechism, and, and they kind of, you know, they could rattle off those phrases, and I could rattle them off too, although I've forgotten a lot of them. I'm back. But okay, we all know, okay, mercy, forgiveness, yeah, God is full of mercy. He does not give me what I deserve. You know, God gives me grace, what I uh, don't deserve, you know. 
Uh, he withholds what I don't do. Okay, yeah, got it. That's not what it is. This is something much deeper and richer. This isn't something we can kind of memorize and get our, our hands onto. This is experience saying, God, over and over, you've gone in front of me. When I was blowing it, you helped me. You jumped right in my brain. Your word spoke to me, and I shut my mouth before I started arguing with my wife. You helped me, Jesus, when I wanted to blast that person on the phone, that, that telephone salesperson, and tell them, you just broke our prayer up at our dinner table. Do you not know it's 545? You're supposed to not be calling me anymore. And I want to jump down their throat. Where's Jesus? Where's Christ? No, I, I want to know mercy and forgiveness and think about that person and their need. They're trying to make a buck, okay? Maybe they're not going to get a buck out of me, but I, I want to treat them as a human being made in the image of God, and I want to respect them and not jump down their throat. And you know what? It was, it was providence that you were praying and the phone rang. Big deal. So what? God knows. He's in charge. He, he can handle your prayer if you stop it and answer the phone. But here's our problem. We're so full of keeping mercy and forgiveness at bay that we don't really lavish ourselves in this mercy and forgiveness that comes through the cross of Jesus Christ, this new and better covenant. I can't earn favor. I can't get my arms around it and make it happen. So we don't want to use this mercy and forgiveness against others. We don't want to use it for ourselves. We want to just enjoy it and have it become part of our being. And that's what happens in the new covenant. We're able to now start forgiving people, even if they don't come to us and ask forgiveness. We're ready to do it. We've already dealt with them and God and said, you know what? That's like the third time, Lord, that person said it to me in that tone of voice. And, and you know I don't appreciate it, but Lord Jesus, I'm going to forgive them because you have forgiven me. You've lavished me with forgiveness. Who am I to hold anything back? Okay, that's the kind of stuff that we can do because Jesus is on his throne and we don't have to try and figure out mercy and forgiveness. He's dumping, us on, dumping it on us if we're willing to take it from him, if we're willing to stretch out and operate in mercy and forgiveness. Well, let me go on. Letter E, verse 13. This is kind of the clincher. The new for us means let the old die. I'll say that again. The new, this new covenant for us means let the old die. Isn't that what he's getting at in verse 13? He's saying, hey, in this new covenant that I am making through the words of Jeremiah, this new covenant he makes, this old one is now obsolete. This old one is growing old and it's ready to vanish away. That should just like excite us and thrill us. The problem is, it doesn't excite me and thrill me because you know what that means? Ted, you got to change. Ted, you need to yield yourself to Jesus and let him open you up and expose some of the stuff that you keep kind of gently closing the doors to. He wants to dig it out and say, it's worthless, it's obsolete, quit using it. There's something much better. I've got for you. Well, this is where I want us to go with some application as we uh, think about this Hebrews 8 passage. 
I want us to look through the lens of verse 13 to have us think, okay, I got to worship God here today. We sang songs, we've prayed, we've given our offering, we're hearing the word, but hearing the word isn't real worship unless we're responding to God as we hear the word, okay? So we need to be responding to what we're hearing. And I want to give you an opportunity, and maybe you've already been doing that, so don't let me, don't let me lie about something you're probably already doing. But let's, in application here, respond. Respond in worship to God. So first thing I want to say is this. Where are you right now with this Jesus that we've seen in this passage? Where are you with this Christ? Not some other Christ, not other, some nice message of, of Christianity or something you hear talked about. No, where are you with this Christ that we've seen today in Hebrews 8? You see, this Jesus tells us that whatever we've been trusting in is obsolete. Okay, so whatever religion, whatever thing you did in your past, like, yeah, I, I, yeah, I was raised in a Christian family. You know, like, I couldn't get away from it. Like, it was all, my parents were, like, brainwashing me. I had one of my daughters in high school look at me one day and just say, you and mom have brainwashed me about Jesus. And I looked at her with full sincerity and I said, and we're not done. Oh, she thought she was going to get me. Well, sorry, babe, you know. Now, 30, 15 years, 20 years later, she's getting it. And she's realizing she's going to have to start doing that with the family herself. Living Jesus in front so that you can't get away from him. He's so beautiful. He's, he's so luminous. He's so great. I'm sorry. I'm just going to continue this. You're going to have to get out of the way. Sorry. Because that's what we want. Jesus has got to become the focal point of our life. So I ask the question, where are you with this Jesus of Hebrews 8? The clock is ticking. God says that your efforts of trying to make God happy, of trying to appease the sin in your life with a holy God, anything less than throwing yourself on this Jesus is obsolete and it's got to go. Okay? And are you ready to say that to him? Are you ready to say, I give up trying I give up my kind of nice religion that I think is pretty good. And you're telling me, Scripture, that it's not. You know, my biggest problem when I was 19 years old was I had people telling me that, and I was angry as all get out because they didn't really know me. The problem was they did know me because they were just like me. They had tried their religious ways. They tried to keep their parents off their backs. They tried to look good externally. Yeah, oh, everything's great, Mom. We're up here. I was in San Luis Obispo, California, going to Cal Poly. It was like the cool party school for all the kids from L.A. and the kids from the Bay Area. End up at Poly, man, and they won't see you. They're four hours' drive away. Hey, everything's cool, Mom. Yeah, yeah. Just keep them off your back. So we learn to do that in our culture, don't we? We learn how to look okay on the outside. And God is saying, no way. No way. I know you. And these guys knew me. And they said, uh-uh, Ted. And just, one guy looked at me and just said, you're going to hell. <laughs> Excuse me? Were you cursing? No, no, I'm telling you what's in the Bible. You're going to hell. Mm, it's a little over the top, man. He was right. And you know what? That worked on me for about two weeks, and I could not get away from that because I realized, guilty as charged, I had played that religion game, and I had this Christ that was just like right here, kind of pet him and, and keep him agile and everything's cool 
But finally, one day, that Christ said, he's calling you in. No way, Ted, you can't play that game anymore. There is only one way, and it's this Christ. My friends, where are you with this Christ in Hebrews 8? Are you willing to say, I'm done playing the game, I need a Savior? I urge you today, come to grips with this Jesus and let him become Lord and Savior and let your life be changed by him. Secondly, let me ask the question to the rest of you who think, yeah, I have done that and and that is my life. Then I just want us to think for a few moments through chapter uh, 8, verse 13. Here's the question that's begging for us. Are my former ways becoming obsolete? I've asked Jesus to be my Savior. I read his word. I come to worship every Sunday. We sing songs, try and have fellowship during COVID. It's not easy. Okay, so what else? Well, the text is telling us, great. However, God's intention is to make everything obsolete that you used to trust in. So let me just for a moment as we conclude, think about the words of a song that we have sung and we're going to sing. Jesus is better, make my heart believe. And I want us to just think about the lyrics for a moment and ask these questions. Lord, your kindly rule has shattered and broken the curse of sin's tyranny. My life is hidden beneath heaven's shadow. Your crimson flood covers me. Glory, glory. We have no other king but Jesus, Lord of all. Okay, and I can say, yeah, to that. Jesus is Lord. I, I, I proclaim that. But here's the question. On a daily basis, am I putting out the welcome mat? Am I opening some of my little hard areas of my heart to say, okay, Jesus, be Lord of this area. Okay, Jesus, help be Lord of my thinking pattern here. Look at the words, in all my sorrows, Jesus is better. Make my heart believe. Okay, let's think about sorrows. You don't know what's going to happen this week. You might get one of those phone calls you don't want to get. Somebody is very sick or somebody died and it just caught you off guard. And if you're like me, you're always trying to kind of protect yourself from things that are unknown. And so you're already thinking, yeah, did, did we hear something about Uncle Al? Is he pretty sick? Uh, you know, he's got that breathing problem and he's got those underlying health issues because I'm already trying to make myself protected if Uncle Al goes under with COVID. You know, I already kind of had it figured out. Yeah, he'd probably go because he's been sick, you know. Why? Why would I do that? Because I want to brace myself from sorrows, don't I? I want to kind of be on top of my game. Yeah, I, I knew that would probably hit Uncle Al. It's, it's too bad. Well, I hope they have a, a service. We can at least do an online memorial service or something. Because why? That's an old pattern of thinking, isn't it? Trying to protect myself. Trying to kind of just be on top of my game every day. And that's important stuff when sorrows come. How about when things have happened to me? People have done stuff to me. I've had a raunchy background maybe. Ugly things happen that I couldn't control. And I've asked the question over and over, Jesus, where were you when that happened to me? And I know I'm never going to get an answer because he's not going to just talk to me in my voice. And I've had people even tell me, go to the scripture and talk to Jesus about it. Yeah, yeah, great. Take my sorrow, Jesus. What do I need to do with that sorrow? That's what you're about, Jesus. Make my old thinking obsolete. Help me not to protect myself. I want the gospel to open up and brighten my thinking and brighten my day. Think about the next phrase. 
In every victory, Jesus is better. Make my heart believe. Every victory. Yeah, victory. We all love victories. We all love to win, don't we? We all want to be right. We all want to have the last word and be heard. We want to be respected, don't we? We, in our own mind, have our little way of dealing with victory. And God is saying, those old habits don't work anymore. They're garbage. Because where do they end you up? Back at you. Do they bring you to my cross? Do they remind you of the cross that I had on Calvary that required me to go low, suffer and die at a cross for sins I never committed? That's a real victory. And the pathway to that victory, Jesus went low. Brothers and sisters, are we willing to go low? Or do we listen to the banter? Hey, do self-care, man. Take care of you. Nobody else is going to do it. And so we have this kind of false sense of self-assurance. And Jesus all the while is saying, my cross is all about that. Last one. Then any comfort, Jesus, is better. Make my heart believe. Where do we go for comfort? Yeah, come on, it happens on a daily basis. The report comes back and your boss wasn't happy with it. You said something and your spouse corrected you in front of people and you felt kind of maligned and like, hey, you, you should have my backside. You know, you didn't need to do that in front of everybody. And so what are we doing? We feel hurt. What do we try and do? What are the old obsolete patterns that God is saying they don't, they don't have a thing to do with the gospel anymore? So where do I go? I find myself all of a sudden, 8 o'clock after having eaten a good meal at 6, and I've got the refrigerator open, and I'm just kind of grazing. Hmm. And then 9 o'clock, I come back, because I don't quite feel full enough. So I'll just take half a serving of ice cream. Yeah, because I'm looking at the carb content. I don't want that many. Of course not. And then 10 o'clock, I come back. Well, I'm, I'm just going to feel full with maybe celery. I know it, there's no carbs there, there's no, you know, but celery. I just want that feeling of full because I've connected full with feeling okay about myself. Obsolete. Passing away. It stinks. There's no need to trust the Savior, is there? There's no reason to run to him and say, Jesus, you got my back. You know what I feel like right now. Thank you at Calvary 2,000 years ago that you suffered and cried and said, it is finished for all my game playing. It's finished. It's over. The strife is over. Jesus wins. So my friends, let me just finish the song, read the words, and we'll pray. Our souls are declaring Jesus is better. Make my heart believe. And our song eternal, <laughs> Jesus is better. Make my heart believe. Glory, glory. We have no other king. But Jesus, Lord of all. Let's say it together. Jesus, Lord of all. My friends, we want this thing opened up. And as the folks come up for, for our last song and we pray, oh God, I want this thing opened up to you. Holy Spirit, show me your beauty. Show me the games I play. Help me turn from those things that are obsolete and are passing away. Let's pray.
Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this beautiful display of the gospel in front of us, 600 years before Christ, and a promise that is absolutely unbelievable when we think about it, that, that you would come to, you'd come to my heart, my life, all the games I have played, and you'd say, no, my heart is yours. You're writing your laws, your love on my heart. Thank you. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Holy Spirit, for coming and helping us to long for what you've done already in heaven, Jesus. Thank you, Holy Spirit, for showing us that there is great hope for transformation. Oh, we think of that passage that as we gaze on Jesus, we are being conformed. We are becoming like him. Oh, help us. Help us to gaze as we leave this week. Help us to worship you in our lives and help us to see that stuff obsolete and going. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Father. Bless you, Spirit, for your work in our lives. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.